0: Welcome to Second in Command, brought to you by COO Alliance, where top level COOs share the insights, tactics, and strategies that made them the chief behind the
1: chief. And now, here's your host, Cameron Harold. Zach Anderson is the current president at Ticket City, a trusted ticket resale service that provides access to great tickets for over 100,000 top sports and music events around the world. Zach has developed and implemented marketing and e-commerce initiatives, which have produced over a billion dollars in sales. He oversees marketing, personnel, product development, and legal departments. And in his 18 years with Ticket City, they've grown to be the largest privately held ticket company in the world. Zach's marketing programs have delivered over 100 million in annual sales allowed for profitable partnerships with large media companies like CBS Sports, Sports Illustrated, and USA Today. He's also a business advisor, investor, volunteer, and a nonprofit board member, and he's going to be my future source for where I can grab a great ticket last minute to get into some event, I'm sure. Uh, Zach, welcome to this podcast. Thanks for having me. Glad to
0: be here today.
1: Yeah, as I was saying just briefly before we got on the call that I've, I've known Randy from Ticket City for years. We met through... Um, through the Entrepreneurs' Organization years ago and through Gathering of Titans where he continued on with that program with, with um, Brian who built 1-800-GOT-JUNK. So I've, I've kind of always known the business. I didn't realize you guys were as big as you were and I didn't know he had somebody as strong as you like running the business for so long. So how did you guys meet?
0: Uh, you know, it, it's one of those things, it was we met uh, a long time ago, it was just a need situation back when I was in school, I was in the University of Texas. Randy started to City in 1990. Uh, in 93, uh, I was in school. I needed a part-time job. Um, I wound up getting one through a friend, and um, I was introduced to Randy as a result of that. Randy said, hey, don't work here. Come work for me. And if you know Randy, you know he's, he's nothing but charming. And uh, that started what has now been a 25-year uh you know, relationship. We've been working together. So so it started way back then. I finished school. Um, back then it was Randy and I and a couple guys working out of a small little corner office in the Adobe Mall. And uh, that was pre-internet. Everyone laughs. Our employees, they can't believe we were doing this that long ago. And uh, it's been, you know, a good ride ever since then. So that's where we got started.
1: Awesome. So tell, tell me just then for our listener, kind of roughly what your business does. I mean, we've seen, you know, websites like, you um, know, I don't want to, I actually don't even want to put words in your mouth because I was going to use some terms and I don't want to use them. So walk us through kind of what your business model is and um, I guess what differentiates you from the spectrum of um, of third-party sellers.
0: Yeah, sure. Well, so there's two ways I'll say it. The first and simple way is, high level is we make sure fans can buy the tickets they want for the events they want to see, period. We, 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 you know, we sell tickets for all events. Um, whether it's stuff that's local where we are in Austin, Texas, across the state, across the country, and even across the globe. How we do it is it's a little more complicated than that. We actually have two different business units. So it's two separate divisions we run the company. One is a B2C marketplace. So think, you know, just like what eBay has done for years or a big competitor of ours, they'll let people know StubHub, where what you're doing is you're 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 taking inventory from a seller and you're connecting a buyer in a safe, reliable transaction. So that's our B2C business and the hallmarks are that, that that's what people commonly know as Ticket City and what we've been doing for many years. We were the first to launch in the secondary markets to launch an e-commerce marketplace, which we did in August of 1998. And have another division, which is a wholesaler and think of that like a mutual fund where We buy and sell inventory positions. Uh, Ticket inventory is, in our mind, like many other commodities. um, There's opportunities out there. And so that division, we've invested for many years in inventory. So, you know, Texas Longhorns and Dallas Cowboys, because of where we're located in the country, were some of our first positions we took. But now we own 90 different college teams, professional teams around the country. Um, we're really agnostic in terms of where the inventory is. We look for good opportunities. Um, we go through the same channels that anybody else would, meaning we, we pay season ticket donations or in some cases personal seat licenses. Um, you know, the difference is we're really good at knowing what inventory consumers are looking for. The huge advantage that both provide for a fan is that you have the freedom to choose. And so the difference between the primary and the secondary market is the primary market, whatever your hometown team is, will say, is super interested in selling you season tickets. They want to lock you down in a full-year commitment to whatever that sport is. In Major League Baseball, they have 81 games. And, And I don't know many people today who could make that kind of commitment. What we're focused on is we're going to sell you whatever seat you want for whatever event you want without any strings attached. So if you're going to go to baseball, for instance, you go to a midweek game between two teams that are both below 500, you're probably going to pay a price that reflects that, you know, we don't look at face value. So maybe below, mm-hmm. if you go to the world series game seven, obviously there's a premium on that. So we have two different business units and they do two very different things. Most people say, Oh, well, you're selling tickets, the same thing, but they're actually very, yeah, very different. differences. Correct.
1: Now, how has your industry changed then over the years? I mean, you've come from, um, you know, I guess the space where very offline businesses, like where where you were buying tickets and selling them. Were you, were you a scalper kind of a, a company back then? Like when Randy started it, was that the, was that the genesis of this? Or
0: absolutely. I mean, everything started prior to, prior it was to the good. internet.
1: I don't know where you sell them. Like, did you, did you sell them in newspapers or?
0: You know, it's funny. That, so for Randy, that's where it started. It started when he was in school in 1990 on the street for UT Arkansas. He was just a kid in school who saw an opportunity and said, hey, this game's going to sell out. People are going to need tickets, and they didn't get them yet. He bought a bunch of tickets, took the risk, realized there was demand, sold them. When I joined, our business was completely predicated on very old school methods. People laugh at now, but, you know, we did phone books. We had newspaper ads, classifieds where people went. We, for over a decade, had a classified ad in the U- U- USA Today, and that was a big deal back then because it was expensive. Um, but you know, those type of things, and a lot of it was word of mouth. But back then, if you were a customer in Texas and you wanted to go see a show on Broadway, the producers, and that was a big show, Lion King before that, you didn't have a way to get to it. The internet has obviously equalized that. Similarly, if you're somebody in California, you wanted to go see a college football game in Louisiana, you didn't have a way to get there. And so that we did. And and so, you know, finding the customers back then was a little more difficult today the internet makes that a little easier, but it's, it's just, you know, new challenge, a different thing to, to, to conquer.
1: And it's, it's interesting. Your business is, is legal. I mean, I I know a few people that have been in, there's a guy Mario Levich from uh, Vancouver who's a company called Showtime that I met through EO. There's another guy, uh, Eddie Espinoza. I don't remember his company, but he's like in LA and he's in the ticket business as well. Um, and then I had a friend, Adam Daly, who was, was buying and selling Olympics tickets. Um, your business is legal, but it seemed the perception from the outside looking in is always like scalping is illegal. So how did you straddle that line from, you know, what was perceived or, or maybe even was illegal to, to being like a legal, legitimate business that has payrolls and pays taxes? And
0: yeah, no, that's a great question. Well, so, you know, the real truth is like any business, we have regulations. And so, um, you know, you may, regulations may say, hey, you can't take your ticket and sell it within 50 feet of the venue's property, but it's completely legal to sell it in an office down the street or, you know, across the country. And so it's regulated. Uh, in the case of Adam Daly, who I've known well for many years, um, he does a lot of international events. And so the international markets are still more the Wild West. But when I started this business in the U.S., there was a lot of dated laws against ticket resale, scalping. They were on the books. Over the last 25 years, you've watched more and more states repeal those laws because what they realized was by doing that, they were creating what we'll call an artificial black market. Consumers wanted the chance to buy tickets, and some of these dated laws and regulations were restricting that, and all it was doing was increasing prices. There was a professor, uh, he's still around today, Stephen Happel at Arizona State University, who did a lot of studying of the dynamics of the markets. And what he found, particularly studied in New York State, which was one of the last big states to bring down any rules against resale in the state, was it was harming consumers, meaning it was causing consumers to pay more money. And so, like any industry, we are regulated. Um, I think that um, because of the nature of what we do, um, we take some shots from people who say, oh, you guys should the scalpers. And we say at the end of the day, hey, we're in business to provide a service. Um, People talk about the tickets that have a mania. So, you know, Taylor Swift goes on tour and tickets are, you know, X dollars. And that's the story that the news wants to talk about. They're not talking about the other 60 percent of shows we sell where the tickets may be at or below face value. The reason we strongly believe in free markets and, and unrestricted free markets for, you know, to, to, to agree is because that's what's best for consumers. Contrary to most belief, we don't love the super high prices because that limits the potential customers in that market. We like when markets stay in control and there's lots of opportunity for people to buy and go enjoy. So so yeah, there is a common perception that what you know, ticket scalping or reselling tickets is illegal, but it's more about the regulations. Now, I will say in Europe and there's some markets abroad that still have laws on the books that are, that are, uh, I guess, uh, anti-resale. In certain parts of Canada, like Quebec, there's still laws that exist. Uh, we abide by the rules and regulations. Um, when the London Olympics in 2012 uh, put a rule on the book specifically for the IOC, say, hey, you couldn't resell those tickets, we complied by it, and we did not do that. We stayed out of that event. Um, now, what I'll tell you is much of what's done to restrict resale is done in a very self-service, you know, it, the people who are, who are pushing for it are the people who have to stand the most to gain from it. I mean, the right. ticket resale in the U.S. today is roughly an $8 billion market. Globally, it can be anywhere from $30 billion or more. And so what happens is if you're a primary player in, the, in that market, meaning someone who distributes tickets to the box office, you're looking for every opportunity you can to limit your competition. What happens to consumers when competition is limited as prices go up, but many of them have the cloud to get that done.
1: So Ticketmaster is getting into your space in the reseller kind of category, are they not? And are they a competitor to you then in that sector or are they a supplier to you or are they both?
0: Uh, They're a little bit of all the above. Yeah, so so Ticketmaster has been in the space for years. Uh, They acquired a company called Tickets Now in Chicago uh, roughly eight years ago or so, eight, ten years ago. Um, And at the time, that was one of the biggest resale marketplaces that existed in in the world. Um, What's been challenging for them is Ticketmaster has been the classic primary ticket distributor. And when you really are straddling the fence between both, Lots of questions arise about where your priorities lie. Yeah. We have very clearly said, we've many years someone said, why don't you all you know become a primary distributor? And our answers are the same. That's not a business we want to go into. We're in a service business, the secondary markets. So we know clearly what our objective is. It's a free market, it's connecting the buyers and sellers, etc. Ticketmaster is a very vulnerable competitor because they have a, a almost near monopoly on the primary market. And what happens is A lot of what's going on today is, again, talking about that potential market share that's out there. They're looking for ways, not just Ticketmaster, but everybody's looking for ways to to keep out the competition. And one of the ways it's been done lately is to make it very restrictive to transfer tickets. So you look at some of these technologies in the day and age we've got today, we all have these smartphones. It should be easier for me to give tickets to you or sell tickets to you or vice versa. And in fact, what's happening is it's going the other way. But the benefit of that is to the person who pays the fees to the team or venue to have the right to distribute them, i.e., mm-hmm. in some cases the primary seller. Yep. And they're looking for ways to sell. so, so Ticketmaster absolutely is a competitor, although they're so big, know, yep. so the largest in the world that we don't look at them in the same way. There's somebody just like one of the many that are out there. They they, they look at the stuff up, they look at those guys as competitors.
1: Yeah, it's interesting because they, they're the ones that seem to be getting the heat for doing anything. And then everyone who's in your space that is clearly just in your space to be loved. So it's great. I want to I switch gears for a second. And just you've really ridden the transition from being the true offline business to being a true pure play online business now. Um, what was it like to get your organization to make that change? And when do you think you really shifted? Was it like 2001, 2002? Or, or has it been evolving c- continuously?
0: Well, I mean, the first part is it's incredibly hard. I mean, change in the organization is a big, a big challenge, and you know, I get to be the bad guy when it comes to those type of things because you have to force change. I mean, the world is moving so fast today, and when a lot of the people you've been with, you know, we've had people in this company have been here 12, 15, 20 years. You're taking people who are very comfortable with the way things work. I remember conversations when email first came out, where people are like, "I don't know about using this stuff," and now we take it for granted today. What it is, you know, we're, we're on Slack 24/7 instead of email, but. You know, the way to do that is you always have to have forward vision in your business. You know, the one thing, Randy and I always sit down, we talk about it, Clark, our CFO. We're not looking just two or three months into the future. We're looking out further beyond that. Sometimes it's hard to put into words, you know, business plan. I know Toyota has their 100-year business plan. I'd love to say we have 100 years. We don't quite have that much. But what that means is embracing what's new. And so in in the 90s, we drank the Kool-Aid. We said, hey, this internet, this is where it's at. We're going to jump into it. And we did. It was a challenge and we invested. You always have to invest more money if you're going to be an early adopter of those type of things. And so from the standpoint of bottom line, there were probably some things we didn't have to do, but we constantly reinvested back in the business and took those chances. And that's what's really kept us relevant in the market. I mean, how many businesses can you name that are out there 28 years, completely privately held and still growing and strong? It just doesn't happen. We've done that because we have looked at that. And so my job here in the company is to make sure that we are looking for those opportunities, but we're doing it in a way that makes sense. Execution is always the key. You know, you have a great plan. You say, hey, we want to do this. You got to make sure that everybody's on board, understands what it's going to be, and that we, you know, stay the course and make it through this.
1: How how has your culture changed over the years? I mean, running the business over over two to three decades. How do you think the culture of the company has started to either iterate or change or, um, or evolve?
0: You know, I think the uh, it's it's a great question. Um, culture is one of those things. It's it, it's made up of the people who are in the organization, and we've been very fortunate that we've had a lot of employees who've been here a long time. So I think there's a there's a backbone of our culture that's always been the same. It's it's a group who works hard, is very committed to each other, and will you know, there's no backstabbing. it's we'll drop anything to help each other because that's what we've been. I mean, it's, it's that that's built into our DNA. I will say we've had to adjust things uh, to make sure that we conform to, um, you know, millennials and, and other things that are our big topics today. We have to make sure. Fun has always been one of our core values, but it's how you institute fun. I had someone tell me, Well, you know, I don't think ping pong tournaments and these type of things are really the fun I want to have. I want to do this. And so it's always how can you ebb and flow and adjust? I mean, when it was just Randy and I and a couple people, I mean, you know, our our office retreats where we were on a fishing trip down to the coast. And that was great. We loved it. But now we have to do something that's a little different. And so at the end of the day, I think our culture is still very much the same as it always was. But if I had to use a word with that, I'd say it's matured a bit, and, and not in a bad way. Sometimes people sure. think mature gets boring. but I would say that I think it's just matured that we understand what's really important, and we don't spend as much time or are wasted uh, emotional energy on the things that don't really matter. And we, we you know, you know, Randy and I, I can admit this. We used to fight a lot, and and and, and it was and it was just it wasn't really fighting. It was just you know debating points. But now we've just learned over the last 10 years, it's like, there's no point. We, I know how he is. He knows how I am. And it's, it's been fantastic. And that's just part of, you know, again, maturing in relationships, just like our culture.
1: Cool. Tell you, you mentioned Gen Y. I want to know what, um, again, from your perspective with, uh, with Gen Y, what's the good, bad and the ugly? And you've been with them since they first entered the, the workforce. I think the oldest Gen Y today is 39 and the youngest is 22. So you've been with them for the entire cohort.
0: Yeah, it's a, um, you know, the one thing I would say is, you know, there's, we have a bunch of fantastic people who work for us who are from that group. But I would say, generally speaking, nobody here. I think that what we've learned is um, longevity is not going to be the same. I mean, uh, I'm still from the era where I think that, you know, you may take a job and be there for a lot of years, just point, I have been. And sure. I think some of the colleagues that I came in with are that way. Today, I you know I had one person say to me a few years ago, said, yeah, you know, three years of jobs, about all I want to do, and then I have to move on to something else. And I couldn't understand that mentality for a while, but then I realized it was a fairly common mentality amongst, uh, you know, Gen Y group. And I have respect for it. It's, it's, it's different than my thinking. I'd rather stay the course and build something rather than hop from thing to thing and look to see if it's better. The other piece is I, I think we've had to learn Um, we took for granted that things we didn't do, like, you know, we were working seven days a week back then, and we didn't think much about it. Um, and, And taking time off was something that we really didn't do until we kind of felt like, you know, you'd earned. And I don't know how many years it took you to earn that, but you just didn't do it. I mean, we could take time off, but we just didn't do it. And we learned that when this group came in, they very much valued their time away from the office. And so we had to accommodate that. things like work from home which we had never done we instantly adjusted to make sure and so at the end of the day I think that um we're all somewhat the same we all have different wants and needs that we're looking for and specifically gen y there's just some different stuff Mm -hmm. but yeah it's taken a little bit of reset by us at the same time I hope that we can we've impressed upon them some of the things we think that it takes to be successful um that are not specific to any generation you're in that you just need to do like work ethic and hard work. I mean, there's really, I mean, there's not much escaping that to be yeah. successful.
1: Yeah. That transcends all the generations. Yeah. Um, you mentioned working from home. Do you hire remote employees or are all your employees kind of location based?
0: Well, so it's a great question. We've actually um, started to use more of that. Uh, so we've always used a lot of freelancers outside the office. So for different projects and that's been something we've been doing for years. But I've been particularly fascinated with um, the work we've been getting out of other countries lately. And so, I mean, not to plug Upwork, but that's a particular place I've been going to use. And I think it's been fantastic to find freelancers for specific jobs. And, you know, I got a guy in Pakistan and another one, in India, who are doing some different projects for us and they do great work and they're thrilled to do it. And um, I think we're paying a fair wage them for what they're doing. And I think they feel like they're getting a fair wage for it and it's a win. And I, I have, you know, I, I would love to have those jobs right here in Austin, but I've struggled to find people that we can get to do it consistently. And So so for us, yes, we're very much using as much as we can, and I think that you'll see that as a much, much bigger part of our model. It's always been something we've done, but if you want to talk about one big shift in our business over the next decade, I think you'll absolutely see us doing more of that. Um, the team we have here is fantastic. You can't replace the people we have but we're the number and size rather than try to grow and say, let's double our head count here. I think we'll pick a few here and there and really work hard to make sure. It takes a little bit more to have that remote workforce, but we've been very happy with the results of it so far. I mean, you know, we've had things that didn't work, but overall it's a very good thing. Yeah. And I think it's a model. I mean, in the world today, I can hop on, uh, you know, and be talking to someone uh, this morning, I was in a call Israel first thing. And that's, you know, the type of thing you need to do today. Uh, and so we're going to do
1: more. Yeah, it's interesting. I was talking to a friend the other day and she was talking about applying for a new career, like a fairly senior role. And I said, you know, really work hard to negotiate the fact that you get to work, work from home and work remotely. And she's like, that's every job is work remotely now. Yeah. I'm like, shit, I, didn't, I yeah. didn't even really think about it, but she's right. It's like, it's so common now. I have a client, a company that I've been coaching out of Boston for the last couple of years. They have 85 full-time employees and not a single one of them works out of an office. All 85 are remote yeah. and they've just figured it yeah. out. They use, you know, Asana and Slack and Skype or Zoom and, you know, Bob's your uncle. Oh.
0: Well, and the hardest thing there is keeping a culture and making sure you're getting what you need done because, while we have fantastic tools like what we're on today's in for communication, and, and we are, as a as a company, somewhat addicted to Slack, I would say that when you don't see people face-to-face and you don't have those opportunities, you do lose a little something. So, so yes, we have folks, I mean, like I know on our team right now, uh, certain days and certain people aren't in the office what they're doing. But then we have other times where, you know, we have a Monday morning little management model that we do every Monday. And I moved it earlier, even though that um, – not too early, but – just just first thing of the week, so we get together because it's like that first thing I want to do in here in the office we can see their faces and talk about what we've got on the calendar and how last week was. And so, yeah, yeah but I, I, you'll see more of us doing more of that. And um, this day and age, there's so much talent out there. You're almost missing out if you're not using this
1: opportunity. Yeah, I agree. It's just too much of an opportunity. So um, before we got on the call, I was I was kind of joking with you. Or I was I was laughing and I said, okay, we'll make you we'll make sure you look good and we'll we'll tease Randy and make him look bad. And you're like, no, no, we got to make sure he looks good. And I I completely agree. The um, I've always said that our job is to make the CEO iconic. You know, our job as the second in command is to make them the the Howard Schultz or the Ray Kroc or the um, you know the whomever right. So Steve Jobs. So how what do you do? Uh, systemically that would make Randy kind of the iconic leader um, and, and how do you kind of take the weight off of his shoulders um, to, to maybe allow that to happen?
0: Well, I mean there's, there's, that's absolutely true and I think the first thing I'd say to anybody you know, if you're looking at the you know, positions, this isn't the job for you if you want to align I mean, thankfully for me, I'm someone who says hey, I love what I do and I love everything that comes from it and I'm thrilled when Randy's out there doing Randy things, Mr. Outside, as he says, and I'm kind of Mr. Inside. So, I mean, the first thing I do is I've got to take a lot of heavy lift front of his He can't be that person if he, you know, the strategies and the ideas and what he's going to say and what he's going to do. And so I spend a lot of time just doing the, the, the blocking, you know, whether it comes to personnel stuff or strategy or execution. So that's the thing I have to do. And, and then I have to also help make sure there's a clear role for them. Because in some businesses, it gets to a point where, <laughs> You look at what the CEO is supposed to do, and you say, well, what is the role they're supposed to do? And so we right. try to make sure Randy has a clear role in our company. And I also constantly remind- They get disconnecting if right. they don't, eh? That's right. That's right. Well, and, and I say, I remind him, I say, look, this is what he does. Occasionally, people come to me and say, well, you know, hey, couldn't he, yesterday, we were a strategic meeting? they were talking about, couldn't Randy use his social presence more to sell our products? And less about all the things that are kind of flowing through Randy's mind. I said, no, I mean, th- we, we've had that discussion with him and this is who, you know, where it is. So I think my job is to basically tee things up for uh, him. My job is to make sure he's aware of what we're doing. He has you know, intimate inside knowledge of all the operations of the business, but not every detail. Because the details are not where he needs to be. He needs to understand the bottom line and where it is. He needs to know where where, you know, where the problems lie and where the opportunities lie and I, I spend a lot of time with him, just kind of staying on message too. I mean, which with Randy, who's you know kind of all over the place, is hard, but I but, but it's really effective. And so I, I try to ask him and make sure I understand what's on his mind. But then I I provide a lot to him to make sure. So I think a lot goes into it. Um, but the reality of the situation is, it's so helpful when he is operating to his peak and doing the things we need him to do the business just goes better and there's better alignment across the board. And so you can feel the energy.
1: Yeah. You oh, you can totally feel it. And I, and I agree with not getting him to be too salesy. Just let him do his thing. I saw on, um, on Facebook recently, Randy was talking about his house and Lake Travis um, was not rising, I guess, overflowing. And I was there six years ago where it was, geez, is there even a lake left? Um, did his house yeah. survive? That was part one. Did his house survive? And then part two was, he was being sponsored by Z Tejas restaurants or something. Was he kidding or what was going on there? He, uh, he, he, he finds a way
0: to, you know, so the good news is yes, his house very much survived, although he did wind up fishing off his back porch. The lights came up so close to the hot to
1: tub. House. I saw him fishing out of the hot tub. That's,
0: that, that's right. He doesn't do anything. Uh, he, you know, it's always going to be a certain flair. Yes, he did. Uh, Z Tejas is a new restaurant that he just recently took ownership in. So he's taking uh, on yeah. that challenge. now. so, so, so he's leveraging his different opportunities, but yeah, no, his house survived. He's in good shape. And uh, it's actually one of the things we enjoy to do. Um, Randy and I, you know, we spend our time together, but we've also learned over the years that like we have a good friendship. But I, I always tell people this too, but we also have our own lives outside of work. He and I are very different people, as you can probably imagine. And so what helps us is uh, I do enjoy, I'll take my son over there and we'll go fishing and you know, it's something, like, we don't talk about work, but if we do, it's very little. But it's a very casual thing we share together. But then the rest of the time, we don't force that relationship. Like, our relationship, if you know someone 25 years, it's hard to you spend yeah. that much time together. But we, but it, it's generally true. We get along well. And uh, so, yes, thankfully, the right. house is good shape. will get fishing over there again soon.
1: I love that you said he has a certain panache. I thought you were going to say she was showing his ass because I think he had the old hot tub, bare butt well, so, fishing look going on.
0: I, I love that because what people always ask me, I get the question, go, did you see what Randy did on, on uh, social media? And my answer is always no, because about five years ago, I had to stop following social media <laughs> because I said, if I'm going to follow him, I'm going to constantly be telling him, Randy this, Randy that. And so he works so much better. So, so I get updates from other people for my wife on Randy's social. And so someone actually showed me that picture and I just laughed now because I said,
1: that's great. So
0: no range love Randy, So he, he is truly who he is.
1: Now, does he have an operational team in place running the Z house restaurant or is that falling underneath your purview as well? No,
0: no, he's got a different group. He's got some great folks over there They they, they kind of inherited the part, as part of the deal, And so, um, you know, one of the funny things I always tell Randy is I said, Hey, if you, you yeah. know, he knows it. I go, if you want, I mean, when you have a new restaurant group, everybody's giving them opinions. I said, if he wants opinions, he knows where I'm at. He, he won't have any trouble finding me and getting ideas. Right. Uh, i got strong opinions about how to run a business and I'll certainly have them about that. But um, they're getting going there and we'll see what they do.
1: That's cool. No, I think it's a great fit for him too. And I, um, I heard a saying years ago from uh, the founder of Boston Markets, he said a person can only sit on one toilet at a time. And if you try to sit on more than one toilet, it gets kind of messy. So the good thing is he's got a good team in place at each at each spot. Tell me, um, that's, it, that's, it. Uh, that's exactly right. Tell me about about vision. You mentioned kind of vision, and and I codified this term called the vivid vision. I want to know how you get the vision of what Randy wants to happen with Ticket City. How do you stay on the same page with his vision, or is it just because you guys have been doing this for so long that it's now so shared?
0: That's a good question. I think that you have to know the person to understand the vision. I know what's important to Randy. Like I know, you know, beyond the surface level. So forget business, and I know what he, you know, what what things he wants to achieve, not just personally but professionally and for us as a company. Um, you know, Randy's written a few books, and so you know. That's my that, next question. You know, there's someone. Who- that's right. If, if you go out there, he, he needs to be able to, you know, always be planning for that next book and what he's going to do and those other things. And so so I know what's going on inside of him. So when we come to vision, I, I know, you know, I kind of know what the things we need to do there. I, I don't have to ask about certain things. When it comes to certain strategic things, like, you know, what we're setting right now, what we're doing, we're setting 2019 forecasts. And so when I'm laying down what the financials are going to look like, how we set the budgets, that's when I'll bring him in and usually to say, Hey, here's what we're looking like. And, you know, over the years, it's typically, you know, he's usually give me a little more, you know, that's always the the reactions never, you know, that's, that's good enough right there and that's okay. But I think that we're well aligned in that sense. So I think, I think really the vision is good. Um, You know, I spend a lot of time out meeting with folks in the industry and looking at opportunities. And so what I try to do is he and I talk regularly, I don't wait. And so, If I'm in a conference in Vegas or out with the private equity circle, I'm talking about what deals we're seeing. And and he's looking at a lot of things, not just in our industry, but others. And so that helps us to form our opinions because if we just thought about the business that we had and how you make it better and not kind of a more of a macro level of what's going out there. I mean, Randy, 24-7 in his office has, you know, he's watching the, the, the stock market, whatever's going on. He's always playing out there. So he's very aware of what's new and different. And I think when you merge together, our industry with kind of the world, that's where our vision comes from. I mean, we're, we're very focused on, we understand that our business, I mean, he, he talks about, and we do internally, about Uberizing a business, you know, it being disrupted the same way the cab industry was. And I think that we spend a lot of time looking and thinking that way because we see a lot of the inefficiencies in the industry we're in. And so we want to have forward thinking to make sure it's like, oh yeah, we're we really doing everything we can uh, to capture what the opportunities and potential is here.
1: It's interesting. I, I love that, um, that he is so forward thinking. Are you guys as a company or that he's written some books now as well? Did, did he use the, uh, the company out of Austin scribe, which is called book in a box? Did he work with them or how did he get his books out the door?
0: Uh, well, he had a very good ghost writer, just like he has yeah. very good people here. He had someone who came in um, and when he wrote the first book, he asked me if I'd take a look at it. And I said, do you really want me to get any feedback? And he said, uh, and I, I knew kind of where we were at. You know, he wanted opinions, but he really wanted to check the box and get it done. Yeah. And uh, he, he's written some interesting books. Now, I will tell you this. The book he has not written that he has to write is the book about his, his real life, the stories, because he, he's written a lot of business, business books about other people's. And uh, people won't believe the things that he's done in life. It's truly amazing. But, but that may be the third one. We'll see how it goes. So, That's cool. I don't. The, the nuts and bolts is I know he had a really good ghostwriter because you can't get Randy to sit down and uh, and, and do one thing that consistently. But somebody had the
1: patience to.
0: To cobble together all those ideas and the stories into the
1: book that he has. Well, there's a, there's a great company based out of Austin called um, Scribe Media. It used to be Book in a Box, and Tucker Max is the CEO and founder, and then their COO is in the CO Alliance. But I've got my third book with them coming out in January, and they've been an amazing group to work with. And I, and I've kind of always oh, well. been saying that you you really can't be a thought leader today if you don't have a book. You know, I, I think for any truly great company that is certainly ten million or above that really wants to scale, if your CEO is going to be a thought leader or be iconic or be seen as as kind of evolutionary in your industry, a book is really one sure way to set them apart. And I don't think there's any time that's easier to, to make that happen.
0: Uh, I agree. I, 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 I Randy uses it that way, and I think I think you see that. I mean. More people, I mean, sometimes I feel like it's the business card of the current era where people, it's, it's there, they walk in, they're calling card. And I, I totally agree.
1: You know, earlier on our in our um, talk, you said something about making sure that every year you've got stuff for Randy to do, to focus on. So how do we find the right stuff for the CEO to focus on so that they still feel that they're working in their unique ability, so they still see value, and so they don't feel like, they need to dive into areas out of are boredom or because they don't know what to do. How, how do you find this, the right stuff for him to stay focused on?
0: Well, so I, I mean, I think the first thing is you have to keep them very well educated what the business is doing. And so, I mean, you know, lack of information, lack of communication always leads to, you know, basically crossing wires and interference. And so, I make sure that Clark and I Clark and I are, are regularly giving him updates on business and make sure he knows what's going on because, you know, we're out of touch and if he doesn't know what's going on or if he loses touch for a while, if he's out on a trip, he, you know, he tends to get back in and start meddling on things that we've got covered or, you know, going in places we don't need him. So I think the first thing is really good communication. The second part is, like I say, understanding roles. I mean, we have now well defined it and we've talked about it. I mean, the one thing we've had in I don't know that everybody can have this conversation, but we've had very candid conversations about what he wants to do. And even talking with, with Clark, the same thing. Um, they're at a point, a Randy's a point in life where he, he wants the freedom to, to, to work with ZK House Restaurant and write books and do that. And so my expectation has to be clear on, okay, how much, can we get from Randy? You know, he's always here for us if we need him in any type of, you know, fire or emergency situation. And then also to make sure that everybody else understands. It's like, yeah, that's the unrealistic expectation. Like if, if they're wanting him to do more than is, because frankly, you know, he's earned the right. I think it's sometimes hard for some of the younger employees we've had come over the last few years who are not used to a CEO who is as dynamic and, you know, he's, he's, he's constantly on the move, whether he's in Austin or traveling somewhere. He might be a birthing in the Giants and or Gathering Titans. He's doing a lot of stuff, and I think that they're not used to that. But I say, hey, look, I was with him in those early years where it was seven days a week, 12 hours a day, and I say, this is exactly where he needs to be. He's kind of a Pied Piper. So I think, like I said, the first thing is communication. The second thing is setting good expectations within the staff to make sure they understand what it is. And then to make sure just that, you know, we talked about a minute ago, our vision aligns. Um, he understands that sometimes there'll be people who question decisions that we make in the business. It may be something that he wants that I have to pull off, or maybe something that I tell him we need to do that he gets on board with. But as long as we both understand that and don't get misaligned, I'm trying to, to, to go in this direction and he wants to be going the other way. That's when problems arise. And so, so we're pretty good about staying on the same page. And so we had a very candid conversation. And I I mean, if possible, I encourage everyone to do that because I think that's the part. If there's no games involved, you can sit down and really talk about like, what kind of time can you give me? What kind of commitment do you want to have? What do you want to do in the business? But if you're not talking to the CEO about those things, um, you know, rather than just letting him dictate, because I think it's a dangerous thing because I think yeah. that every CV is going to be different, but you want to make sure you clearly understand, like, you know, do you want to be putting in seventy eight hour weeks, or do you want to say, Hey, I want to do these things. And then you handle this other stuff. And so we've been really good about getting clear about that. And so there's no misrepresentation, misrepresentation between the two of us about what the roles
1: are. That's great. You, um, you, we talked about, um, uh, about Randy, kind of being able to offload stuff and work in his unique ability, work in his areas. How do you stay relevant in your role? You know, every day this is the biggest company you've ever built, and biggest company he's ever built. But he gets to keep delegating because he started it. Like, how do you get to keep? Because you have to keep growing. How do you continue to grow your skill set and your capacity as a leader as the company scales?
0: Well, I mean, there, there's there's a variety of ways. I mean, one is to continue to take on new challenges in the business. So. I never sit still. I want to be able to be in all areas of the business that I can, add value. I want to understand all areas of the business. Um, We are as efficient as I may say we are today. We are miles from as efficient as we could be. And, you know, when I said that last time, we were miles from there. I mean, there's always much work to be done. We can be better than we are just currently what we're doing. Beyond that, the opportunities. And so the real ways I do it is is stay really engaged in the business. I and mean, one of the recent changes I've made is I've gotten back more into some of the certain tasks I do that are part of kind of the daily nitty-gritty, and I make sure that I understand how those work and I can pull them off myself. So, you know, if, if the plug got pulled and it was just me sitting here by myself, I could run the business with, you know, I wouldn't be blind. The second one is um, I stay really involved in the industry. Uh, Randy is a, a well-known uh, person in the industry, but I'm the one who goes out there and represents us at uh, industry events and build a lot of relationships with our competitors and our vendors and our partners. Um, and so I spent time doing that. And then the last one is I really love the great game of business. And so I spent a lot of my time here in Austin um, working and mentoring uh, startups. And for me, The benefit there. uh, Some people say, "Oh, you know, you get a free ride. You know, if you hit something there, you know." But I was like, "It's not about the money because a lot of these aren't going to ever, you know, amount to anything." But it's a fantastic opportunity to work with businesses back where they were many years ago for us, yeah, and learn from them the same way that hopefully they're learning something from me. So, so those are the ways I really, I mean, stay really engaged in our business and make sure I'm always learning something new here. focus on the industry and make sure I really, I mean, Randy's constantly, you know, asking me questions. Now, who's that company that raised that money? Now, who's that person over there? And those are the things I try to know like the back of my hand, because it's important for us to stay abreast. And then, like I say, uh, the time I get to spend with other companies is kind of, I'm always very relaxed in that because, you know, I, I kind of feel like we've been through a lot of the challenges that, and opportunities and the fun stuff and the not fun stuff that they're going to go through. And so because of that, um, I can share it in whatever way they want. So it keeps me sharp.
1: That's cool. Yeah. You've got it dialed. So two, two last questions. First one's going to be an easy one. Are you able to get tickets for burning man when they sell out again this year? Absolutely. All right. I will circle back in January if I don't get them on the normal ticket sale. And then uh, lastly is what's a word of advice or maybe a lesson that, you know, you've really learned from your experience over the years as a COO that you wish you'd known when you were younger, you know, when you were really starting out in your leadership career, What's something that you now know that you wish you'd known then? Oh,
0: you know, don't take it so seriously. Um, You know, there's a difference between being motivated and driven, um, which, which, I mean, I love to work. I mean, you know, I put my wife, my kids first, but when I'm home and if I'm not interfering with them, I want to work. So I've got the drive. I don't, I love what I do, but I would say you got to take it back a notch and recognize We are all so damn blessed. We've had these opportunities bestowed on us. We've made these opportunities. But you can't get this stuff and get all twisted up about it. I mean, business challenges, you think it's the biggest thing in the world. You think the whole world is looking at you and it's such a big deal. Oh, my business did this or we didn't do that or, you know, whatever the situation is, you've got to bring it back a notch and say, hey, no, take it seriously but don't get all twisted up about it. And, yeah. and I think that was a lot. It took me years to learn that to really kind of, um, you could take business just as seriously, but not get as wound tight about it. You make better decisions when you're just not all out of shape. Uh, you're happier. I mean, your quality of life is better. And so I think some people may have trouble interpreting that. They're saying, well, do you care less? I was like, no, absolutely. I care just totally as do. much. Yeah but you have to be able to not get as tied in the situation because the stress and anxiety and worry, I mean, it's, it's, it's a killer for the, for the, you know, the workforce today because we're all out there grinding and working hard and you have to be able to put in perspective. So, so I think it took me well over a decade to get the right perspective. And I look back at myself at that decade before and go, man, what a jerk I was. I didn't recognize what was really important but, but, but I did get it. And, 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 and I still get, you know, you have your moments, but overall I'm much better. And that was what I said going way back in the conversation. Randy has a relationship is a major better as a result of that because you know, when you can just uh, say, okay, let's we'll figure it out.
1: You know? Yeah. No, it's, it's true. Like we're, none of us are getting out of this one alive, right? We're all just, we're all going to die at the end of the day and let's just have some fun along the way. So that's awesome. Zach Anderson, the president of Ticket City, thank you so much for sharing with us today. Really appreciate it. And um, next time I'm in Austin, we will hit the Z Tejas Bloody Mary bar. I look forward to it. Thanks for the time, today. All right, bye. Take care. Say hi to Randy for me, too. I will. See ya. Okay.
0: You've been listening to Second in Command with Cameron Harold. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe. To learn more best practices from industry-leading COOs, please visit COOalliance.com.